Our sermon passage today is Jonah 1, 17 through Jonah 2, 10. Please read with me. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Well, how deep is really deep? I know some of you are from the western U.S., and so maybe you've been to Crater Lake, the deepest lake in the country. Crater Lake is located in Oregon, and at its deepest is almost 2,000 feet deep. The deepest lake in the world, though, is in Russia, Lake Baikal, which is estimated to run up to over a mile deep. The world's deepest gold mine is in South Africa, having a shaft penetrating over two and a half miles into the earth. That's equivalent to 10 Empire State Buildings stacked top to bottom. All of that, however, pales in comparison to the deepest spot on the ocean floor, believed to be in the Western Pacific at the end of the Mariana Trench, Challenger Deep, approximately 36,200 36, feet below the surface of the water. Pretty deep places, right? I wonder if you've experienced a time in your life when you felt like you were in a deep place. Not physically, per se, but you'd come to the end of yourself. You were ready to despair. Last week, we began a short study in the book of Jonah, and we found Jonah the prophet receiving a command from the Lord, but running away. We saw him leave his home and journey down to Joppa. And then we saw him board a boat and go down to sleep. We saw God pursue him in his rebellion. And the last thing we saw last week was Jonah being cast into the raging sea and sinking down into the waves. Jonah has reached the deepest point of his downward course away from God. And this morning we come to the second chapter. And Lord willing, we'll see three things from this text. Jonah's complete helplessness, God's sovereign mercy, and Jonah's thankful heart. So first, Jonah's complete helplessness. So in the passage Corey just read for us, we see what immediately happens after the events of chapter 1. So there in verse 17, a large fish swallows up Jonah as he's sinking down into the ocean. We don't know much about this fish. So some think it was a whale. Others think it might have been like a, a sea monster. So others try to explain away this part of the story by calling it a fictional tale, a fable meant to teach us something. Some have even offered the thought that maybe Jonah escaped the waters and spent three days and three nights in an inn called the fish, 
while he recovered. But the long and short of it is we're simply not told much about this fish. In fact, the author doesn't even really seem much concerned to explain it to us. Instead, we're shown in a straightforward way that Jonah was about to die in the ocean, but God sent a fish to save him. Think about it, really, if this was a fictional tale, wouldn't we expect the author to really embellish this part? Make it extra dramatic? It's not dramatic. It's pretty matter-of-fact. God acted and saved Jonah in a powerful way, bringing a great fish, not an instrument of death to Jonah, but an instrument of salvation. And in the prayer we see Jonah offer in the belly of the fish, we see him remembering what it was like drowning, almost coming to death. So verses 2 through 9 lay out for us a poem, a song of thanksgiving from Jonah to God. We see there in verses 2 through 4, kind of a parallel with verses 5 through 7. We see similarities between those two sections. And then we see a final section in verses 8 through 9. And through it all, we just see how clearly helpless Jonah is. He says there in verse 1 that as he sunk down, he called out to the Lord in his distress. Isn't that interesting? When he had fled to Joppa, he ignored God. When he had entered the boat, he forsook God. When he'd gone to sleep, he rejected God. When he, the captain told him to pray, he'd been silent towards God. But here at the very deepest point of his downward journey, he cries out to the Lord. He says there at the end of verse 1, he cried out from the belly of Sheol. Sheol was the word given to the place where the wicked remained until final judgment. So Jonah's here. He knows his life is coming to an end, but he knows as he's sinking in the ocean, he's also sinking down under God's wrath. There in verse 3, he remembers the waves and billows rolling over him. And in verse 5, the waters closing in over him to take his life. He recalls the, the weeds of the sea beginning to encircle his head as he descends to the roots of the mountains of the ocean. This is a description in church, not only of looming physical death, but in utter spiritual helplessness. You see that in verse 4. I am driven away from your sight. Jonah was the one that had run away. But now he sees that God has, in his rebellion, pushed him far away. Verse 6, he's going down to the very pit of death. Bars are closing in upon him forever, like the gates of a prison, shutting him in eternally. Verse 7, his life is fainting away. His oxygen is almost used up. His downward trek has reached its greatest nadir, its greatest point. Church, see where Jonah's rebellion and rejection of God has brought him here. It's brought him to an end of himself. The only work he has left to do is to breathe his last and die. His own foolish, self-focused agenda has landed him not at ease in Tarshish, but drowning in the sea, pursued all the way to the depths of the earth by the judgment of God. Do you see here the complete helplessness of Jonah? His schemes, his strategies are, are meaningless now. He's at the mercy of the sea with no power to help, no power left to fight. I, I wonder, friend, when was the last time you felt helpless? Maybe it was recently when you re realized again that a broken relationship just won't be easy to patch up again. Maybe it was that time when you received a fateful diagnosis from the doctor. Perhaps it was when you were confronted with the suffering of a loved one and you're just unable to help. 
You know, you may not appear helpless this morning, but I'm certain there's a place in your life where you feel completely not in control. And listen, friend, wherever that spot is in your life, wherever you feel helpless, that's the place God is working in his severe mercy. Your helplessness and weakness is not something you need to overcome. That'll be impossible to do, as impossible as Jonah flailing to survive in the waves. No, your helplessness is divinely meant to drive you to God, the all-powerful one. Christian, think for a second about a place in your life where you feel that way, where you feel utterly incapable, hopeless. In that place, God intends to meet you in his grace. If you're helpless this morning, you're in the exactly right position to seek after God. Only the helpless recognize their need for help. Only the sick know they need a doctor. Don't be discouraged in your weakness, Christian. Commit all the more to seeking out your Savior in the midst of your trial. If instead you commit to searching out your own way and working in your own strength, you will see no need for God and you will escape the only option left for your salvation. But when you're confronted with your own helplessness, you will find him to be the only one you can turn to. And that's what Jonah does. The second thing we see, God is full of sovereign mercy. Look there in verse two. Jonah calls out, he cries out in desperation, and look what happens. He answered me. He heard my voice. Verse six, he brought up my life from the pit. When Jonah was sinking down, he prayed to God. He remembered God's holy temple. He directed his attention towards God's mercy. And what did he find? He found that the one who had pursued him in wrathful justice was now pursuing him in merciful favor. A fish comes and swallows him up, preserves him from drowning. When he's fainting away, losing consciousness, it is God who intervenes. When he was at the greatest distance he could run from God, as far as he could go, God meets him in grace. Those six words there in verse 1 are shocking. Or verse 2, I called out, he answered me. Think a little bit about who that I is in that sentence. That's Jonah, a rebel filled with desire to flee God. That's Jonah who had turned tail and run. That's Jonah, the one who had rejected the command of his Lord. He's the one crying out. And what does the holy God do? He answers in mercy to that Jonah. A rebel prays to the Lord and is saved. Is there anything you think makes you too great a sinner for God to save? Christian, is there anyone in your life you think is just too far from Jesus who will never believe? Eric Redmond writes, how deep does God's mercy go? God's mercy will go down to the sandbars in the ocean for a rebellious prophet who deserves to die. No one is beyond that mercy. It is never too late to repent and turn to the Lord. I think of the story of Corrie ten Boom, a Dutch woman persecuted severely in the concentration camps of World War II. 
And she recounts an event that took place several years after the war ended. She was speaking to a group of people on forgiveness. And after the, the message, she was approached by a man. And she recognized him immediately as one of the guards who had taken part in persecuting her and killing her family. And when he came near, he, he told her who he was and, and said, how good it is to know that as you say, all our sins are on the bottom of the, of the sea. I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did. If you know the story, you know Corey did not want to reach out and shake his hand. But as she remembered that God had forgiven him, who was she to withhold that forgiveness? Friends, God saved a Nazi guard. He saved Jonah. He can save anyone. No one is too sinful for God to save. No one is beyond his sovereign mercy. I mean, we, do you see God's sovereignty throughout this story, church? Jonah's totally out of control. And when he is, God is completely in control. Look there in chapter 1, verse 17. That verse is so often taken up with our thoughts about this great fish. What was it? How did this happen? Could it be? But look at who commanded all of it in the first place. The Lord appointed a great fish. Look there in, in verse 3. Jonah is reminded of his experience drowning in the ocean, and he confesses that even though the sailors had cast him into the waters, ultimately it was the Lord himself who cast him into the deep. He says, your waves, O Lord, and your billows passed over me. God had pursued Jonah, had brought all of this to pass in accordance with his plan. And so when Jonah cries out for mercy, who else but the Lord who can bring his life up from the pit. It's the Lord who commands the fish to spew him back onto the dry land in verse 10. You can't overestimate God's power to save. It's impossible to overestimate God's complete sovereign mercy. Some of you might have positions of authority at work. You're a, a CEO or you're a, a manager. And so part of your job is to appoint certain jobs, projects to be done, right? You can appoint your assistant with a specific task. But that assistant's probably, you know, fallen through sometimes. And you've realized that depending on who you ask, you're going to need to follow through and make sure it's done because the process might break down and the blame would be yours. Things fall through the cracks. Friends, not with God. When God appoints anyone or anything to do his will, it's carried out. It does not fail, ever. God sovereignly sends a trial into Jonah's life to deal with his sin. He's behind it all. And now he sovereignly sends salvation into Jonah's life to rescue him from death. Church, just as an aside here, there's no comfort in explaining away your trials and your hardships as somehow not coming from God's hand. Somehow beyond his control or outside his will. John Piper's mother was tragically killed by a flying piece of lumber when he was 28. And here's how he describes thinking about how God could be in control of something as horrible as that. He says, how can you worship a God who just fumbles a ball? He can't control a piece of lumber? That's not a God I'm going to worship. 
It is far easier to me to worship a God who is totally in control of everything and yet offers me the mysterious hope that this is going to be good for me. I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know if there's a trial that's forcing you to think if God loves you or if God is actually as powerful as he says he is. But friends, from the story of Jonah, we see God is in complete control of both our hardships and our joys, of both our griefs and our delights. He's our sovereign God who has pursued us in mercy as he did Jonah. If he controlled the actions of the storm in chapter one, if he appointed the great fish to do his bidding in chapter two, well, then God is in control of everything going on in your life. And if you belong to him, you can be sure that everything he does will ultimately end up for your good and his glory. If that's not true about God, then you need to stop worshiping him. But if it is true, then he's totally worthy of every ounce of your life, every bit of your trust. You know, a lot of folks see the story of Jonah and they talk about Jonah getting a second chance. And there's truth to that for sure. He disobeys God, but God in his mercy saves him. And we'll see next week how he restores Jonah to what his original mission had been. But friends, if, if you just think of God as merely a God who will give you a second chance, you're selling him short. God is someone who will totally remake you, redeem you, utterly save you because you're completely helpless. He doesn't just save you so you can do better next time. He saves you when you're unable to do anything to please him. If he gave you a second chance and then left it up to you, you would need chances to infinity. If you belong to him now, church, you're indwelt by his spirit and he promises to produce in you. Listen, he, he promises to produce in you what he commands from you. God's salvation is complete and sovereign and merciful. And so Jonah proclaims in verse 9, salvation belongs to the Lord. And friends, God's salvation plan did not end with Jonah. In the passage Aaron read for us earlier from Acts chapter 2, we see how just as God was in complete control of Jonah's salvation, so also he was in complete control of the worst crime in history 800 years later, bringing even that crime to end in salvation for the world. Even though it was the sailors who cast Jonah into the waters, Jonah knew ultimately it was God who did that. And even though the Jews put Jesus on the cross, the apostle Peter knew in Acts 2 that ultimately it was God who did that, working to judge his own son to save our rebellious souls. Remember how Peter put it in Acts 2, Aaron read for us earlier. Peter says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. 
It was God who was behind Jonah's trials. It was God who was behind Jesus' crucifixion. And just as Jonah was in the fish three days, so Jesus was in the grave three days. But then God raised him up in victory over death. God is full of sovereign mercy. If you're here and you're not a Christian, thank you for being here. And I hope you don't come thinking that Christians have it all together because that would negate everything I've just said. Christians are helpless apart from the Lord. And in your sin, you're helpless to please God. The Bible says even that you're spiritually dead. You're God's enemy because you've rebelled against him, but you're unable to change that. You're unable to love God as he's made you to love him. But the Bible also says that in his amazing mercy, God has decided to open up the eyes of sinners like you and like me by the power of his spirit so that we might be given new spiritual life. God did this by sending his own son, Jesus, to die in our place, to take our sin upon himself, to be judged for us. And and so now if we repent of our sin and trust in faith in Christ, we will be saved. Sin will be wiped away. We will be pleasing to God. Friend, you're helpless. God is the helper. He is sovereign. And he loves you with incredible mercy. Won't you turn to him this morning? Jonah's downward spiral reached its most extreme point. But even at that point, God's grace was stronger, wasn't it? One author writes, at length, the downward journey ceased. And Jonah's descent was dramatically reversed. When Jonah could sink no lower, the Lord intervened and raised him up. What mercy, what grace. And so in light of that grace, we see the third and final thing in this text, Jonah's thankful heart. Uh, This psalm, this portion written in chapter two between verses two and nine is really a psalm of thanksgiving, even from the belly of the fish. Uh, You can see how Jonah knew the the Psalter, he knew the Psalms, and he uses many of these images from the Psalms, and they're actually true of him. You know, David writing in the Psalms will be like, Lord, your waves are cast over me, and he's talking about sorrow and fear, and Jonah's saying, actually, they are right now, Lord. I need your help. Jonah recognizes what we saw last week, that God has relentlessly pursued him in wrath and relentlessly pursued him in grace. And so he confesses there in verse 9, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. See how Jonah responds in thanksgiving here. He's not even totally saved yet. He's not vomited up on shore in verse 10. But as as one commentator writes, deliverance creates the obligation of worship. Deliverance creates the obligation of worship. We saw that back in chapter 1 where the sailors, after being spared the storm, worship God. 
make vows and offer sacrifices. And here in chapter 2, Jonah comes to the same place. He's more delayed than the pagan sailors. But God's prophet finally comes to him. And God, after God saves him, he worships, it, worships him. He says, I will make sacrifices. I'll fulfill my vows. I will give you thanks. Jonah finishes his psalm of thanksgiving by giving himself as a living sacrifice to the Lord. And we'll see how that turns into his service and obedience in chapter 3, Lord willing, next week. But for now, church, Christian, do you, do you see how Jonah's experience is, is actually your experience too? You were helpless, but you've been rescued. You had false gods that you worshipped, and you found them to be empty and meaningless. And you've given them up to pursue God and find in him all you need. As the sailor's gods could do nothing in the storm, but Jonah's God, he could do everything. And church, that's our God. I wonder, is, is that your experience of him? You look back on your life or even possibly this morning and you see how God has put you in positions where all you've been able to do is cast yourself on him. Is that a position you find yourself in today? Brother, sister, trust him. Prove his faithfulness and then tell us about it. Don't turn again to the idols of the world that will tempt you and say, we can provide what you know only God can provide. Salvation belongs to the Lord, to no one else. He owns it. It belongs to him. If you want it, you can find it, but only in him. What, what else are you looking to this morning to get out of your pit? What other gods are you worshiping? You're worshiping the God of pleasure. Just looking for the next thing that gives you joy and comfort. You're worshiping the God of success. Just getting that promotion or the approval of others. Those will fail you, I assure you. Find your salvation only in Christ. In church like Jonah, may we be disciplined to cultivate in ourselves and in one another hearts of thankfulness. This isn't something that we just go home with application, I need to be more thankful. We can help one another be more thankful. We can point out things in each other's lives and say, do you, do you realize that you need to be thankful to God for that? I see an evidence of grace in you. Praise God. Let's thank him together. Because we're always on to the next thing, aren't we? We're always wondering what's coming up. Sunday morning, I just go on my calendar and see what the week's going to look like. I so quickly forget the sermon I've been writing. That's why we, we regularly share the Lord's Supper like we did last week. That's why we often sit in moments of silent reflection at the ends of our services so that we can just cut the noise of our lives and remember how great our salvation is, how much we have to be thankful for. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Charles Spurgeon writes on that phrase. He says, that is one of the grandest utterances any man ever made. Salvation is of the Lord. He works it from beginning to end. And therefore, he must have all the praise for it forever and ever. Church, who is like the Lord our God? Strong to save. Faithful in love. Our debt is paid. The victory is won. Lord is our salvation. Let's pray.
Oh Lord, how often we forget that salvation belongs to you and look for it in so many other places. Oh Lord, how often we forget just how helpless we are. And when we see strength in ourselves, our confidence leaves you immediately and returns back to our own weak selves. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us for denying our helplessness and running always to you. Lord, how much we have to be grateful for. Draw us to yourself this morning through your son. Hear our grateful praises. We love you. We worship you. We want to live for you because you gave up your life for us. Lord, hear our praises now. Praises that will echo in our hearts this week and will echo throughout eternity as we give praise to you for what you've done. Give us thankful hearts as we proclaim that you are our salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.